really great pleasure to introduce Jodie McVernon, who's going to give today's talk. Jodie arrived in my office about eight years ago, um, and she said, I'm a pediatrician and I work in mathematical modeling. And I have to admit, in a sort of slightly snobby way, I thought, oh, you? <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. It's just been, we've had such a good time working together, and Jodie's taken the mathematical modeling and put it along with all the stuff she knows about pediatric infectious diseases and other infectious diseases, and is really doing a lot of very exciting things where she is now in Melbourne, um, really using mathematical modeling right alongside clinical and population data. And having been a bit at the beginning, I'm now just terribly proud of her. <laughs> um, and she's going to talk to us today, I think, having seen the slides move through, about a sort of rather broad series of stories about the control of infectious disease through vaccination. I think vaccination? Um, only one of which, of course, has gone to zero, but others, other things have happened. And Jodie's a wonderful person to tell this broad story, but also actually with real expertise about mathematical modeling. Um, I'm going to take any questions today, but we'll see. Now, before I hand over to Jodie, I have to do the thing I was supposed to tell you first, which is that next week's seminar by John Schnellnuber won't be able to happen because unfortunately he's unable to come. And Alison and Avril are going to make sure that you get you here by email and on the school's website what is happening this day. Uh, so that was the information. So Jodie is going to talk to us for about 45 minutes, is that right, Jodie? And then that should be the same time question. Thank you. Thank you for a very generous introduction. <laughs> and thank you for the invitation to speak. It's lovely to, to come and present today. So the overall theme of this series of talks, as I was made aware, is of getting to zero. And I was asked to particularly focus on the notion of global eradication of infectious diseases. And the, the sort of theme that I've taken in dealing with this is, in trying to eradicate infectious disease, do we get to a point where not very much, having reduced disease to a very low level, can actually begin to undermine the goal of none at all? And I'm going to illustrate this by first just giving the rationale for trying to eradicate the infectious disease burden, but then looking at four different stories that tell us about the ways in which vaccines have been used to try to eradicate disease with varying success. So clearly smallpox is our one global success story and um, maybe gave us false hope of eradicating many other diseases. I'm then going to talk about some of the challenges in eradicating polio, which have been particularly uh, thorny as we near zero for this particular pathogen. I'm going to talk about pertussis or whooping cough, which is probably one of the poorest um, controlled vaccine preventable diseases worldwide. And then talk about influenza, which is something that all of us probably have a slightly heightened awareness of at present. Um, but I'm going to talk about seasonal and pandemic flu and what the particular challenges are in trying to prevent and control this disease. Uh, and at the end of the day, we'll discuss whether getting to zero is actually a feasible goal. So just very, very briefly, in a, in a very big picture way, I'm just going to remind uh, all of us of the burden of infectious diseases in the world. And if we look at the causes of death in, in neonates, so newborns in the first month of life, and children under five in the world, um, we see that from these figures from 2004, about a third of deaths in children under five occur in the neonatal period. So that's in the first month after life. About a third of those are because of prematurity and being too small. Um, about a quarter are due to difficult deliveries and, and babies being asphyxiated or having prolonged, uh, prolonged birth. And about a quarter of them are due to neonatal infections. So these are things that might either have been acquired by the mother and passed on to the baby, or infections that are picked up in the, the month after birth. If we look at the rest of the causes of death under five, we see that almost all of them are due to infections. 
and the vast uh, contributions of those are acute respiratory infections or pneumonia and diarrheal diseases, where children die of dehydration. But still 4% of childhood deaths in the world are due to measles, which is a, a, a disease that clearly we've had a vaccine against for many years. If we take this out to the whole population and think about adults as well, um, I have here some quite old figures, but they're projected figures of the global burden of disease in 2020. And these are presented for the whole world's population, for developed countries and for developing countries. And these figures are presented in a rather nasty figure called a disability adjusted life year. So this particular measure is used a lot in health economics and it describes the costs of premature death or of years of life that are spent with disability or impairment. And it's just a way of quantifying the burden of disease. And the first thing to notice is if we look at all causes um, of disability adjusted life years, in developed regions we have 160 million years represented and in the developing regions we have a tenfold uh, increase in burden. So not surprisingly, the developing regions will dominate the world burden of disease. But even with an increase, as we're hearing about very frequently in, not in chronic non-communicable diseases in developing countries, still TB, pneumonia, diarrhoea and HIV are four of the top ten causes of, of disease burden in developing countries. And because of their overrepresentation globally, they come into the top ten worldwide. But the other thing that isn't often talked about is we're all aware, or many of us in public health are aware of this increasing burden of ischemic heart disease and chronic lung disease, but we should also remember that all of these individuals are also more susceptible to infectious diseases like pneumonia and influenza. So there's an interface between these burdens. So how have vaccines been used to control disease? And we're going to talk a bit about the underlying biology of different infectious diseases, uh, how vaccines work to prevent them, and what the population level impacts of those vaccines have been. And I'll start with our first success story and a rather famous victim of it. So here we have uh, Queen Elizabeth I, who was a famous victim of smallpox in her 30s and thereafter wore large amounts of white lead makeup to hide the pockmarks on her face. And many poets of the 17th century waxed lyrical about the disfigurement of their objects of their affections uh, by smallpox, which was cruel and unpartial sickness, sort of that archmonarch death that subdues all strength by weakness, whom all kings pay tribute breath. Are not these thy steps I track in the pure snow of her face? Mm -hmm. So smallpox was a significantly disfiguring disease. It was first described in the 10th century by an Islamic physician, and of note, uh, it was described in a very Galenic way of talking about the body and its humours, for those of you who have read anything of Galen. And it's described as um, smallpox arises when the blood putrefies and ferments so that superfluous vapours are thrown out of it, and it's changed from the blood of infants, which is like must into the blood of young men, which is like wine, perfectly ripened. So it's this kind of rite of passage of maturation of the blood. And here on the, the right is a figure from a 16th century compendium of uh, the, Naztec, the Aztec and Nahua people of Mexico, again showing a typical victim of smallpox, which caused these very typical blisters or vesicles all over the body, extending down to the palms and soles, um, prostration of the, of the patient and, um, and general um, debility caused by this infection. But interestingly, as here it's seen as a rite of passage, smallpox was not actually a particularly severe disease in the main, apparently, certainly in the United Kingdom, until the 17th century. So in the early 1600s, um, the numbers of deaths ascribed to smallpox were in the tens, or even in single figures. And over the course of the 17th century, it appeared to increase as a, as a background cause of mortality. And here we see deaths during smallpox epidemics in the spikes and here is a proportion of all this, what proportion would you to smallpox? 
Recurrent smallpox outbreaks were subsequently described in Europe and the Americas during the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, many royal persons were infected and some died. And by the 20th century, it's estimated to have caused 300 to 500 million deaths globally. As recently as the early 1950s, there were about 50 million cases every year in the world. And in 1967, even with um, introduction of vaccination by that time, WHO estimated 15 million infections each year, causing 2 million deaths. And it's amazing that from that disease burden, um, the eradication of smallpox was certified in December 1979. So how is this achieved? Well, there's actually been a long history of immunisation against smallpox. And the first method was to take the scabs of smallpox sufferers, grind them to a powder, and inhale them. <laughs> and this insufflation method was described uh, in, a, in an Indian text around 1000 and later in Chinese texts of the, the 16th century. And this particular technique was associated with about a 1% fatality rate. So you had to be fairly motivated to, uh, to be immunised or take your chances. Smallpox inoculation was, uh, was next used, and this involved actually making a cut into the vein and taking some of the fluid from these little history vesicles and directly putting it into the vein. And by having an infection introduced not by the natural means, um, a milder disease would result. But the key to this was you had to get the whole village together, get all of the children together, do it all at once, and keep everyone together until this mild disease had run its course and everybody was immune, because it basically produced a wild-type smallpox infection, and if others who were not inoculated at the same time came in contact, they could develop severe disease. So this particular technique had about a one in a thousand mortality. It was first imported to England by Lady Worley in 1721. Uh, the royal family were quite interested in this, but decided it should be trialled on prisoners before they decided to take it up. And uh, the trials being successful, it was accepted and apparently quite effective. Um, the real, though, breakthrough in smallpox vaccination was the use of cowpox, uh, and there's some controversy about whether Jenner was actually the first to inoculate with cowpox to prevent smallpox infection, but it had long been known by farmers, and perhaps is the reason for so many beautiful fair-skinned dairymaids in quarters of the period, that individuals exposed to cowpox, and particularly dairymaids, were immune to smallpox when it came uh, in large outbreaks. And so again, in this wonderful history of ethics in, in vaccine development, uh, Jenner trialled the inoculation on his gardener's son first, to be sure that it was safe. And uh, when he expanded his clinical trial to some 30 subjects, he included his own son in the trials as well. And vaccinia, which was developed from this cowpox virus, uh, was obviously upscaled in development and, and used very widely. And that was the successful basis of eradication of the disease through a coordinated global effort. Despite any concerns about potential side effects of this cow-derived virus, uh, apparently large-scale uh, outbreaks of cow-like projections were not seen in the general public. So why did this vaccine work? And here's where we come down to the sort of mathematical modelling part of the talk, which is really just a very simple framework that describes the way modellers think about infections in populations. And here we have a really simple way of thinking about dividing everybody in the room up into one of a series of compartments or boxes and we just let people go from one into another. So individuals in the population would be born susceptible to smallpox. Depending on how many susceptible people there were around and how many infected and infectious people there were around, they'd have a certain chance of moving into this box and becoming infected themselves and infectious. Of those, a third of people died and two-thirds of people recovered and were resistant. They had lifelong immunity to smallpox. So in some sectors, having smallpox scars actually made you more marriageable because you had survived the outbreak and you would be hardy and should another outbreak come along, you would not succumb. So the vaccine basically did this. 
So the vaccine, by making individuals move from the susceptible to the recovered and resistant box, bypassed this whole nasty business of becoming infected and infectious and risking death and disfigurement. And so the vaccine, by basically uh, bypassing infection, by providing lifelong immunity, as a natural infection had done, was able to reduce the number of potentially susceptible people in the population. Even if smallpox were introduced, it couldn't take a foothold because there wouldn't be enough people around that you could infect. And in this way, um, global eradication could be achieved as long as enough people in the population could be immunised, acquire this lifelong immunity, and you could reduce transmission of the disease. But is this the case for all pathogens? So next I'm going to talk about polio, which has been providing some challenges in the global eradication effort uh, in recent years. And here again, polio is a disease that has long been evidenced in human populations. Here we have an Egyptian figure showing a typical wasted leg. Polio basically um, can affect the nerve cells that, that supply muscles. The muscles therefore don't grow and develop, and so particularly if affected in childhood, limbs will simply not grow. And this wasted leg is quite typical of an early onset of polio. It was first recognised, though, as a distinct condition in 1840, and quite distinct from smallpox, where if you had the disease, everybody could see because you were covered in blisters. Uh, most cases of polio are completely symptom-free. It's actually an infection of the gut. Um, most people who get it have no idea that they have it, so they can't be isolated from others or prevented from mixing and spreading the infection. But in around 1% of cases, it causes neurological side effects and this paralytic form of polio that kills off the nerve cells. And polio actually caused major epidemics only really from the late 19th century onward, and this is one of these quirks in public health, that improved sanitation was the cause of the problem. Because prior to improvements in, in sewerage and, and water quality, babies and very small infants would pick up the infection early in life. And it was actually only as the first age of infection became increased and individuals would wait several years to develop their first infection that they were more at risk of getting complications if they got the disease at an older age. And so these um, pandemics of polio were described in Europe, North America and Australasia during the 20th century. By 1952, in the US alone, there were 58,000 cases reported. And remember, only 1% infections are symptomatic, so that means there were 100 times as many infections. More than 3,000 people died, and more than 20,000 were left permanently disabled. And one of the, the sequelae could be sort of wasted limbs, as you saw in the Egyptian figure, but also in severe paralytic polio, the individual's chest wall would be too weak to actually let them breathe. And so you have these you know, historical figures of huge wards full of iron lungs that basically created negative pressure outside the chest to assist breathing, and many people were maintaining these for their lives. Not surprisingly, this was a very um, terrifying disease in the population. There was a lot of um, panic around polio outbreaks, many schools were closed to prevent infections, and there was a huge public mobilisation campaign and a race to a vaccine, the whole March of Dimes movement um, was committed to developing a vaccine against polio. And Salk um, developed an inactivated vaccine in 1952, which was announced and, and became more widespread in 55. And again, um, in this tradition of vaccination, here he is immunising his own son. Um, Sabin then developed an oral polio vaccine using a live, attenuated or modified strain that did not cause severe disease. And this was actually not taken up at all well in the US initially. Uh, it was licensed in 1962, and actually the Russians mainly used it in the first instance, and it was trialled in many countries around the world and found to be successful. But why is it important that there were two vaccines? Well, here we have a paper from the early 1990s that looks at 
two group of children, one of whom received the inactivated injected polio vaccine in infancy, and the other of whom received the oral vaccine. And all of these individuals were given a challenge dose of the oral polio vaccine virus. So it's a harmless vaccine. Um, but the, the, the purpose of the test was to see whether or not having been vaccinated earlier would prevent a gastrointestinal infection and to see whether or not individuals would shed the virus in their stool. And they were challenged with either a high or a low dose of the vaccine virus. Those who had received the inactivated poliovirus, 80% shed the vaccine virus, compared with 30% of those who received the oral vaccine. Um, with the lower dose challenge, those figures were lower, but there's still this relative difference. And, and overall, if you'd received the inactivated vaccine compared with the oral vaccine in childhood, you were two and a half times more likely to shed the vaccine strain. So it showed that the infection could still establish itself and still be spread around. Perhaps more concerningly, if we look at the duration of shedding, <clears throat> that 80% figure for the inactivated polio vaccine, over here we have um, the proportion of the percentage of vaccines excreting and how many days after challenge that occurred. And these two bars here um, are the, the amount of shedding in the IPV recipients. And at day seven, we have 80% shedding. We're still at day 42, but six weeks later, a substantial proportion of them are still spreading the virus around. Now, this infectiousness of oral polio virus vaccine is potentially quite a useful thing because if you go into a village and you're going to get 80% of the children in that village, they will still go home and spread it around and infect their siblings who may have missed out, and everybody in the village can effectively be vaccinated. But are there downsides to this? So that... That study really tells us that the vaccines worked in very different ways. So if we think about the injectable poliovirus, we have our susceptibles becoming asymptomatic infectious, a very small portion developing disease, and actually all of these should go back to the recovered and resistant box if, uh, if the infection resolves. But what did the IPV vaccine do? Well, basically, it was good at blocking this stage here. So individuals could pick up the virus still spread it around, but they had a much reduced risk of getting these severe complications. And there was maybe some small effect on infectiousness. We've seen that individuals who received IPV didn't all shed that oral polio vaccine virus, but it was much reduced compared with the oral polio vaccine, which basically was better at blocking this step of developing the infection in the first place and basically helped to bypass the whole infectious process rather than simply preventing disease. So what are the implications for that? Well, if we look at the current global polio status, there are still really two regions of the world where polio remains endemic. And in both of those parts of the world, in Niger and also in, in Nigeria, sorry, and also in, in, uh, in Asia, there have been large anti-vaccination movements, largely faith-based, where there's been a strong belief that polio virus may actually make their children sterile. So people have refused vaccination in those parts of the world, wild-type polio strains still circulate. It's difficult to see on the slide, but if we have here one country with a solid yellow, and all these ones around here basically have, can you see the lines? These are countries where polio importations have occurred, but the disease has not actually established itself in those countries. So we can see that from here, just geographically, the disease is able to spread out to adjoining countries and even some more distant. But it hasn't taken hold and it hasn't become established. And in these countries, oral polio vaccine is used. So even if the wild-type virus is imported, basically ongoing transmission can be blocked by the fact that the vaccine will prevent infection. The downside of oral polio virus, though, is that it's shed in the store, can be shed for a long time, 
and it persists in sewage and in groundwater. And in some cases, the virus then can revert to the wild virulent form that can actually cause disease. And around the world in the last 10 years, we've had a number of reports of small outbreaks of vaccine-derived polio cases. So these are cases where the vaccine virus itself has mutated to a different form and caused disease. So it would be desirable to get rid of oral polio virus altogether, because then we wouldn't have vaccine-associated polio cases. But if we surround those pockets of the world where wild-type polio is still circulating with people immunised with the injectable form, it can still be transmitted and get out and get to individuals that have not yet been immunised. So what we end up with is a, a real challenge for eradication. That injectable polio vaccines are being used in developed countries where they're incorporated into other childhood vaccines in the schedule. Vaccine coverage that's achieved is generally high and vaccine handling is good and there's an infrastructure to ensure delivery of vaccines in a safe way. But there is still potential for transmission of imported strains. So there is a need to maintain high coverage to make sure that direct protection can persist. Oral polio vaccines are being used in developing countries but we know that gaps in coverage remain with this wild-type disease. Uh, however, there is the downside of persistence and circulation of vaccine-derived strains. So while it would be very desirable to shift to OPV, it's kind of on a knife edge as to when you could safely do that because of these pockets of wild-type disease. So we're kind of stuck globally at the moment with the need to continue using the oral vaccine that has risks um, at the same time as trying to eradicate those last pockets of transmission and to overcome the barriers to immunisation that exist. I'm now going to talk about a disease that actually causes a very large burden in developing developed countries as well as developing countries. And pertussis, certainly in Australia, is our worst control of vaccine-preventable disease, despite 50 years of immunisation. And pertussis was described in the 16th century um, really very well. The patient is seen to well up and as if strangled holds your breath tightly in the middle of the throat. They're without the troublesome coughing for the space of four or five hours, then this paroxysm of coughing returns. And basically the name whooping cough, which is the other name of pertussis, comes from the fact that individuals will cough and cough and cough and cough and cough until they must draw breath and this characteristic inspiratory hoop occurs, um, in which space there's a little bit of a, a gap and then the coughing starts again. So prior to vaccine use, pertussis was predominantly a disease of children under 10 years of age. The infectious duration of pertussis predates the cough. Kids would turn up just with a bit of a snotty nose and could really have any other cold, but then develop the cough and overall can be infectious for around three weeks. So they have a lot of time to infect other people. From there, the Chinese describe this as being the cough of 100 days. So the actual coughing persists for a very long time. And during that period, there are a number of complications that may ensue, and these include pneumonia, vomiting, particularly with these prolonged coughing bouts, and cough with vomiting is quite characteristic of pertussis. Uh, cerebral hypoxia, so actually if you cough for long enough to make yourself blue, um, particularly small infants can have brain damage as a result of this, and seizures. And death and disease are far the highest in the very young infants. They're just small and they have very little functional reserve. Their lungs are small and, and they're more susceptible. And the disease characteristically occurred in two to five year epidemic cycles. So vaccines have been available against pertussis for some time. Wholesale pertussis vaccines based on a whole killed bacterium were developed early in the 20th century. And these became more widely used when they were introduced into routine immunisation schedules with diphtheria and tetanus, so the so-called triple antigen uh, that was around in the 50s. These days I think children get about 10 immunisations at their first visit. 
But there were a lot of concerns about these vaccines because they were made from a whole bacterium. They had lots of other bacterial components in them that were quite, if they reactogenic, they caused lots of local pain and redness at the injection site. They caused a lot of fevers, particularly in young infants. And sometimes they caused this side effect called hypotonic, hyporesponsive episodes, where infants would just become limp and floppy and look terrible uh, for several hours following immunisation. And there was a lot of concern about these side effects potentially causing long-term neurological damage. And there, were, there was a lot of concern among um, parents and, and immunisers in the 1970s. Vaccine coverage fell in many parts of the world, and Sweden actually withdrew the vaccine altogether. So it had no pertussis immunisation for, for quite some years. And really the key to having pertussis vaccines reinstated was the development of newer acellular vaccines that rather than having a whole bacterium thrown in the soup, um, just comprised several components that were thought to be the most important for developing protective antibody responses. And these became more widely used around the world in the 1990s. And these vaccines were very effective. And here we have um, a trial from Senegal showing um, the classic epidemic cycles of pertussis. So these are numbers of cases by year. And here we see vaccine coverage is increasing in the population in different age groups over time. And these three peaks are sort of get smaller each time as the vaccine takes effect in the population. But the cycles are still there. And um, there was a paper from the 80s by Paul Fine and Carson that looked at this phenomenon of epidemic cycling and what it actually meant about what the vaccine was doing for pertussis control. So here we have pertussis cases reported in the UK or even Wales from 1950 up to 1980s. And we can see here pre-vaccine, there are these sort of epidemic spikes. With vaccine introduction, the, the baseline falls down, so the disease is being controlled and the spikes are smaller, but they're still occurring. And then here by the, by the 70s, where vaccine coverage is starting to fall off, we see an increase in disease, but we still have the same period of cycling. And the comment at the time was that the vaccines may be more effective at preventing disease than at preventing infection and ongoing spread and transmission. And just to, to look at that in a different way, there are some clinical trials that have, there's a clinical trial that's been reported recently um, in 2001 that looked at Italian children. So in Italy, it was ethical to do this trial because vaccine coverage in Italy following pertussis scares had been extremely low. So we had um, a controlled trial of looking at the effect of pertussis vaccines, basically two different manufacturers' vaccines, at preventing any cough or spasmodic cough of different durations over a six-year period. And what this basically shows is that up to the age of six, infants immunised in the first year of life have excellent protection of 70 to 80% against cough disease. So we know that it can prevent disease. However, a more recent study in, of, of using a particular acellular vaccine in Denmark went back and looked at cases of pertussis that were notified among young infants and looked at members of their household to see whether or not they had siblings in the household and whether or not that was associated with any increased risk of acquiring pertussis disease compared to controls in the population. And what this particular study found, if we just look at this figure um, up the top here, is that um, the relative risk of getting pertussis if you had a sibling basically rose with the age of your sibling up to the age of about six. So even by the age of two, if you, if you were a newborn who had a two-year-old sibling, you already had double the risk of getting pertussis compared to a child without an older sibling. And by the time your sibling was six, and remember they've been protected against disease all this time, you had about a fourfold risk of getting pertussis disease. So this does support the argument that the vaccine is less effective at preventing transmission of infection than it is at preventing the symptoms. 
So again, back to our paradigm of how do vaccines work, here we have susceptibles to pertussis, can be asymptomatic or develop symptomatic disease. The vaccine um, appears to be quite effective at reducing infection to some extent, at perhaps reducing ongoing transmission to some extent, but mainly to modifying the course of infection and reducing the symptoms of cough. Now the other extension to the question of pertussis is the fact that immunity following natural pertussis infection was never lifelong. So it was known that individuals could get pertussis over and over again in their lives. So instead of just staying recovery resistant, uh, natural immunity from pertussis infection was thought to last about 10 years, and it's quite well described that individuals get repeated attacks. However, because they're older, they don't tend to get a severe disease anyway. And the general thought from looking at studies of immunity and studies of reinfection in vaccinated people is that that duration of protection is actually shorter, probably only about six years. So the chance of immunity waning and becoming reinfected is actually higher if you've had the vaccine than if you've had the vaccine. And what's happened around the world is that um, as vaccine coverage has improved, we actually have seen a shift in the pattern of pertussis infection. So I'll start out here with Italy, which is a country that's had low vaccine coverage historically because of the concerns about whole cell pertussis. And these graphs depict, by age, the proportion of the population who had high antibody teasers to a particular pertussis antigen. And that antigen is thought to relate either to just having had a vaccine that produces high levels of antibody, or to have been exposed to the natural infection. And so in Italy, they have a very high teaser antibody response to the vaccine, and then antibody levels sort of basically decline with age. If we look, however, at Finland and France, where there are very high levels of vaccine coverage, um, you can see in Finland they have a vaccine that has a low antibody response, in France it has a high antibody response that wanes quite quickly, but actually the disease only starts, starts to rise again after about 10 years of age and peaks somewhere between well, 15 and 24, there are quite a lot of infections. And this has been seen in all developed countries where coverage is high. It's also seen in countries like India where you have high coverage populations and low coverage populations that you have two completely different patterns of disease. And so there's been much more disease among adolescents and adults because the disease has basically moved across to infect a new age group. But the problem is that adolescents and adults also come into contact with very young infants who are the ones who are most at risk of getting severe infection. And so many developed countries, including Australia, have seen resurgence in infant cases who are the canaries in the mind, really, to tell us that, that pertussis is still circulating widely in the community. In Australia, we've had prolonged pertussis outbreaks in the southeastern states now for two years. So we see this upward age shift in disease in the high coverage countries, and this is due to a number of factors. So one is that the vaccine-derived immunity wanes over time. The other possibly is the fact that the vaccine has worked well to reduce transmission in young infants. But what this means is that adults are less likely to come into contact with infants and have their immunity boosted naturally. And so there is a longer gap between exposures. And they may be more vulnerable then to actually getting disease if their antibodies have waned to a lower level by the time they're re-exposed. We know that both age and vaccine status modify disease. So if this age shift to the right means that individuals are less likely to develop severe infections, but there is imperfect protection against transmission, and this is the real problem for the vulnerable infants. So the focus of management of pertussis is really nowhere near uh, eradication or, or even in many cases elimination of reducing disease to low levels, but it's moved to mitigation, which is trying to reduce the burden of disease due to the ongoing transmission of pertussis. 
And so uh, there have been several trials around the world, and we're participating in one in, in Australia at the moment, of looking at immunising babies at birth and giving their second dose of vaccine at six weeks of age, so at least they have two doses of vaccine before they're two months old, whereas most babies will get their first dose at two months. And also of surrounding the people near them, or protecting the people near them against pertussis to stop them transmitting to babies. And we know that from studies of newborns that a household contact who might be the source of infection is found in about half to two thirds of cases, and often that's a parent. So um, in the southern states of Australia at the moment where we have these ongoing pertussis outbreaks, parents have been offered free vaccine uh, at or near the birth of their child to try to help to protect them against transmitting infection. There's also a global pertussis initiative that's sponsored heavily by Sanofi Pasteur, uh, which is very keen on adult immunisation schedules. And you know, 10 yearly immunisation of 40% of adults could eliminate the disease to low levels. So these strategies are probably not terribly feasible or deliverable in the longer term, and I think we'll be left with, with mitigation effort. So finally, I'm going to talk about influenza, which has a very long history in human populations. It was actually described by Hippocrates in, in his work of the epidemics. And from this, um, the, the Oxford Dictionary describes that influenza has the sense of visitation of an epidemic disease, developed from the notion of astral or occult influences. Many of us who've been involved in working on H1N1 would be sure that dark forces have definitely been at work. Um, but it was applied specifically to the epidemic of 1743. And it's predominantly a seasonal epidemic disease in temperate climates where there is a clear winter and summer period. In the tropics, it goes year-round, so there's a very strong climatic effect on this disease. And pandemics are clearly described from the 16th century onwards. Prior to that, it's often difficult to distinguish sort of global disease outbreaks uh, one from another. The 1918 Spanish flu caused between 20 and 100 million deaths and was particularly um, the most severe pandemic that's been described. And this was a particularly severe disease in healthy young adults, which is the thing that was so unusual. And what's described is this W-shaped mortality curve. So for infectious diseases, and particularly for flu, for seasonal flu, we usually see a very high burden disease in the very young. So children under five are at high risk of severe infection and complications. The very old, particularly those with underlying conditions, may also be at risk of severe disease. But in the 1918 pandemic, it was healthy adults aged between about 20 and 40 who actually were very prone to developing severe hemorrhagic um, pneumonia. And, and actually the figure beforehand, this one here, of the individual with the blue-tinged lips and the blue ear, uh, was a victim of this particular form of severe influenza. Deaths were attributed either to a viral pneumonitis or perhaps secondary bacterial infections. And there's a, a raging debate about this particular issue, but probably both were, were causes of death at the time. And influenza, is a problematic disease because it is a very variable disease. So it's actually a, primarily a bird pathogen. Um, birds are the primary host of influenza and from there it can affect a number of other mammalian species. And the reason why we get worried about avian flu and now swine flu is that from time to time, various parts of, of the genome of the virus can reassort and lead to the emergence of a new form of the virus that may have antigens in it that humans haven't seen before. And this is called antigenic shift. So suddenly there's a new form in the population, people haven't been exposed to that variant, and a large proportion of the population then is presumed susceptible to the infection. This is how pandemics can arise. Once a new virus comes in though, it tends to adapt to the human host, and over successive years, 
um, the virus will mutate in, in small ways by a process of antigenic shift. So each time it replicates, it makes an imperfect copy of itself. Copies that manage to allow the virus to evade the host immune response are more likely to be uh, to develop up and to spread on to other people. And so we get different, slightly different forms of influenza virus circulating from one year to the next. And this is why every year you need to have a new influenza vaccine. So how do we understand natural control of influenza and how should that translate into vaccine development? And immunity to influenza comes from many aspects of the immune system. So in all infectious diseases, we all have the capacity to make innate immune responses. And this is the sort of first line of immune defence that says I have inhaled a virus, it doesn't look like me, um, it shouldn't be here, there are sort of generic cells that come in to fight infection and there are hormones that are released that will then stimulate activation of other immune cells that come in and will develop more specific responses to help to fight the infection and clear it away. So these cytokines and these interferons are very important, they limit virus replication. They also are the things that make you feel lousy when you have the flu, it's not the virus itself, it's you. Um, and there is also some thought that severe responses of these cytokines may actually be involved in pathogenesis of more severe disease. So they're protective, but they may also have a downside. Humoral immunity refers to antibodies, and antibodies are directed against two main glycoprotein antigens on the, on the virus. The first is the hemagglutinin, uh, and the other is the neuraminidase. And when we talk about the influenza strain, so this year we have H1N1, uh, there are three different hemagglutinin strains that have been the predominant cause of infection in humans over the last 100 years, and two forms of neuraminidase, N1 and N2. But obviously other ones come in, birds have 16 kinds that have circulated, and H5N1 we're aware of as avian flu, and there have also been outbreaks of H7 and H9 in humans in recent years. So antibodies against the, the hemagglutin are, are particularly effective at producing sterilising immunity because they actually block the virus binding two cells. Antibodies against the neuraminidase also have a role in protection, but to a lesser extent, and these will block virus release from cells, so they stop the progression of the virus through the body. The cellular immune response is also important because there are many cells that fight infections, and there is a particular class of memory T cells that uh, clearly seem to be boosted on re-exposure to the virus, and these cells recognise different parts of the virus that are actually more conserved so from one year to the next. So there's a viral nuclear protein which is recognised in particular, and um, individuals may maintain these responses for many years. So, for instance, in the pandemic of 1968, individuals who were born before 1918 actually had a much reduced rate of illness. And it's believed that that's due to a long-lived cellular immunity um, against some conserved part of the virus. And these cells have an important role in viral clearance. So they're, they're activated, they multiply up over the first few days of infection, and they probably reduce viral shedding. But obviously, if they take a couple of days to get going, they're not going to prevent infection. But they're of interest in that they can modify disease, and they may modify infectiousness. As I say, all these things are very finely balanced. And if we look back at 1918, there was a, an interesting paper published a couple of years ago that looked at this W-shaped mortality curve and tried to explain what it meant. So basically, you had the very young dying of influenza, then you had a relative period of protection through early childhood and adolescence, then the sort of 20s and 30s were dying in their droves, then there was again a sparing of the sort of 30s and 60s, and then the elderly were dying um, up above that. 
And so it was thought that there were various immune mechanisms that were operating in the population that may have explained this protection. And so thinking first about the very young children, we know their immune responses are underdeveloped, they've had very little exposure to previous flu strains to build up their immunity, and so it was kind of expected that they would be uh, badly affected. If we think about the individuals who are aged, um, the, the very severe cases in the young adults, they were kind of between two camps. So we had this relative period of protection in childhood, which is actually described for a number of infectious diseases, and may be explained, well, it's a hypothesis, by the fact that some of these cellular immune responses are, are less upregulated in children than they are in older adults. So they actually mount less of a response that might be harmful to the infection, and there's this honeymoon period of the immune response described. And that was particularly pronounced in remote Alaskan villages where none of the adults had seen influenza, nobody had any immunity, and basically everybody but the children died. So this relative protection of having a, a less developed immune response in that age group was the thing that saved the children, so unfortunately were then on the left. It's thought that some of the slightly older adults may have seen a related H1 virus back in the 1880s when there was a well-described pandemic. So there was protection in the, the slightly older adults, but the very younger ones in the middle had these robust cellular responses, but no antibodies to protect them against the infection. So without antibodies to block the infection in the first place, the fact that their immune systems were active is thought by some to be the cause of the very severe disease that was seen in the healthy young adult population. So it's a finely tuned balance. So you would think that more immunity is always going to be good for you, but making sure that that balance is correct may actually be important in the severity of disease. And just to show in Australia, in the um, present H1N1 epidemic, we've seen a similar picture where adults aged between 20 and 60 have had a higher than usual rate of hospitalisation. So here we have um, age group in five year bands. Here we have an age specific hospitalisation rate. This is the sort of usual here in the solid line, and this is the over-representation of hospitalisations we've had here in this uh, 20 to 60 years age group. About a third of those have had some underlying chronic disease, particularly diabetes or obesity. We've had a huge disease burden in our Indigenous population, who've been you know, tenfold more likely to be admitted to hospital. But, but many of these are, are completely healthy adults, and of these, about 13% ended up in intensive care, many requiring extensive cardiorespiratory support. So while on the whole we had a mild epidemic, um, the severe end of it was actually very severe. The other debate that's come out of the current pandemic is the issue of whether flu vaccine is bad for you altogether. So we know that um, seasonal vaccines are effective in preventing this year's flu strains. Seasonal vaccines don't contain the whole influenza virus, they contain bits of the hemagglutinin and bits of the neuraminidase. And so the antibody responses that are stimulated by vaccination are restricted to these particular antigens and the cross-protective cellular responses that we've talked about are not going to be elicited. So a question that does arise from time to time and certainly has again this year is whether individuals who've had repeated seasonal vaccines are actually more susceptible to novel strains of influenza viruses. And there was a famous Canadian study that was reported in the Canadian press um, but still has not been published in full that um, put the theory, or actually reported, an increased rate of, of severe or hospitalisations for H1N1 influenza among people who had received seasonal influenza vaccine. This observation hasn't been repeated elsewhere. There have been extensive studies now in the United States and Australia that have not confirmed any association of risk. And a study from Mexico has reported that the vaccine may actually be protective. 
but it's, it's a recurring debate and one that does have a logical basis. Uh, it's quite clear, though, that the Canadian press has, has dropped the idea of an increased risk of disease because a more recent report about H1N1 vaccine is actually uh, considering that St Nicholas uh, should be considered a high-risk individual due to frequent contact with small children in shopping malls <laughs> and actually promoting vaccination. So they seem to have overcome this grave concern. The other feature that we see in flu vaccines, which is a curious one, it has not... Uh, yet been reported for H1 vaccines, it certainly was seen for the H5N1 vaccines, is the notion of original antigenic sin. And this is the idea that the first flu virus or the first flu vaccine that you're exposed to will actually focus your immune responses in the direction of that particular virus. And anything you see subsequently will have a diminished response. And here's some clinical trials data from a study we did in, in Melbourne, looking at antibody responses following um, doses one and two of an adjuvanted H5N1 vaccine. So this is the bird flu um, virus. And what we see here first, we have um, a graph showing antibody teeters. So here, basically, the, the higher the teeter, the, the bigger your immune response. And here we have the proportion of participants who achieve those teeters. And if we look at the adult data first in blue, here following the first dose in the dotted blue line um, is the, the antibody response. And following the second dose, there's basically an increase in teeters because the line is higher. If we look at the, the children's uh, responses, just following the first dose, they do better than the adults following the second dose. Following the second dose, they shoot way up. So we saw much higher doses, dose responses in children than were seen in adults. If we then looked at just the children, and children were given two different doses of vaccine here in this particular comparison, and looked at those who had previously received a seasonal flu vaccine, and those who had not received a seasonal flu vaccine saw much higher antibody responses in the children who'd never been immunised against flu, uh, both for the 30 microgram and the 45 microgram dose. So this was kind of supportive of this notion of original antigenic sin and was quite concerning to people at the time of seeing these trial data that actually seasonal vaccination could reduce the response to pandemic vaccines that were then being developed against H5, because the pigs caught us out before the birds got us. So, but it's still around. So how can influenza vaccines be improved? Well, there are a number of ways that they could be improved. We, we would be interested in, well, one of, the, one of the drives in vaccine development is to improve what's called heterologous protection. So we talked about antigenic shift and that strains vary year on year by a subtle degree. And we've certainly seen in some newer forms of influenza vaccines that we do get improved year on year protection. So this year's vaccine may also protect you against next year's strains. And there are live attenuated vaccines that now can be given intranasally. And these do improve, provide improved cross-protection. They're just basically given as a spray up the nose. And even if you look at old Russian data, just even immunising with inactivated vaccines up the nose gives better protection against related strains. So the mucosal immune response actually fighting the infection where it strikes does seem to be a more effective means of delivery. There's also been increased use of novel adjuvants. So adjuvants are basically immune stimulants that can be added into a vaccine to try to improve the immune response. And there are two in particular, ASO3 and MF59, that are being used in licensed vaccines in Europe against H1N1. And these have been seen, certainly for H5 vaccines, to broaden antibody responses. So looking at response to a vaccine made from one particular strain of an H5 virus, if you then looked at the, the cross-protective immune response to related virus strains, it was actually much better for vaccines that had had these adjuvants included. So for a pandemic vaccine, Starting off with something that will provide you with broader protection means you don't have to actually have the virus strain that is going to go on and cause the pandemic. So this was sort of an attractive option for a pre-pandemic vaccine that could be stockpiled and used in the event of increased spread. 
The other desirable feature would be improve what's called heterotypic protection. So having vaccines that don't just develop against minor variants, but across types. And here it would be desirable if we could induce broadly cross-reactive responses, such as those seen with the T-cell responses. However, as we've said, those won't result in elimination, but they may reduce transmission by reducing virus shedding, and it's possible that they may also modify the course of disease, although this is still not clearly established. Um, so at a population level, they may actually work very well to decrease the overall burden and reduce disease spread. So what have we learned? Well, to my mind, getting to zero is really unlikely to be achieved for most pathogens. And in a way, smallpox is kind of the dream ticket, but it's not representative of, of every other pathogen. And more realistic endgames that might be achieved with existing vaccine technologies include elimination, so reducing disease transmission to lower levels, and we've certainly achieved that for many diseases, and also mitigation, so just protecting those who are at greatest risk of severe or complicated disease by focusing directly on them and the people close to them. Particular challenges for vaccines include development of more robust immune responses where immunity wanes particularly where part of the role of the vaccine and the way it prevents disease is actually by reducing transmission, because in that situation the opportunities for boosting are limited and uh, there needs to be a decision either to, to keep boosting the population or ideally to have a more immunogenic vaccine. It also is desirable, as we've seen in the case of flu, to better stimulate all arms of the immune response and all aspects of the protective response to more effectively mimic natural protection. And obviously improve cross-protection against strain variants. Uh, to reduce the likely emergence of novel pathogens would be another desirable goal. So I'll end with my, uh, my inspiration for the talk, which is uh, another famous English queen. Um, but uh, when I got the title Getting to Zero, my, my sort of linking thought was being too low for zero. Uh, and so hopefully I'll show you that that can actually make eradication uh, more difficult than ever. Thank you.